Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Good afternoon. I'm Bob Shrum, the Warshaw Professor of Politics at the University of Southern California and the Director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsite. I'm here with Mike Murphy, my co-director, for this edition of Bully Pulpit. And the question we're asking is, is California still a golden state? We have two terrific guests. John Chang served as California's 33rd state treasurer from 2015 to 2019. Prior to being treasurer, he served as state controller from 2007 through 2014, and I'm proud to say that he was a fall 2020 fellow at the Center for the Political Future. David Crane is the president of Govern for California, a lecturer in public policy at Stanford University. He was a special advisor to Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger from 2004 to 2010. He's written extensively and has often been cited on the subjects of government accountability, pension funding, government finance and investment policies, political reform, and more generally, the quality of governance in the state of California. Uh, So I'm going to throw out the first question, and it's going to be the question I alluded to in this introduction. Let me go back to the title of this conversation. Is California still a golden state? And either of you can go first. John gets to go first. Oh, David, I'll let you go first. You're the guest here. <laughs> well, so the answer is is undoubtedly yes. Uh, and the reason that California has become less well-governed uh, than it used to be, uh, part of it is, is this dramatic growth and probably the most uh, complex, uh, you know, population in the country, if not the world. But also uh, for about five decades, the legislature, which is, you know, Article 4 of the, of the California Constitution and a and most assuredly an equal branch, a co-equal branch of government in California, for five decades, they've largely been dominated by special interests, not because the special interests have been so strong, but because the general interest has been so weak. So call me, call me, uh, you know, Don Quixote or call me... Uh, Foolish, but I think California uh, will be very golden. But it's going to take uh, a decade or two to get back to that level. John, what's your reaction to that? Well, I moved to California in 1987 because I thought the uh, what would be the very best place would provide the best opportunities. Understanding uh, what little I did of the challenges that California would bear me with the uh, the greatest upside. I, I still believe that firmly. However, uh, it's not. I don't. It's, I don't believe that's true for all individuals. The, uh, right, the, if you look at the ecosystems, you have to be placed in the right ecosystem when you think about where this future is going. Uh, I think if, you, if you're a big risk taker, if you can build a great uh, community around you, uh, the upside is incredible. Uh, pointed, uh, I agree with David on, on the aspect, we need stronger governance uh, in many aspects. The, when you think about just the economic foundation uh, that's required for success, uh, we need the uh, leadership uh, to continue to grow in regards to uh, you know, a well-being for those who need this, the social ladder, who need some social foundation. Uh, we need to make sure that we can uh, try to support businesses uh, 
far better than we do today. And we need to make sure that we can make a, a, a provide a quality of life, uh, starting with housing. Uh, that's not available uh, to, to every Californian today. Well, Mike, you can either jump in or I'm going to ask a more pointed question. Um, well, I'll set up your pointed question with a semi-pointed comment. I, too, as a transplant to California, think it's the golden state, but there's no shortage of tarnish on our gold. I've owned businesses in California, and I've owned businesses in Virginia and other states. And for small business, it is harder here. Uh, what my conservative friends, and I, I travel in that tribe often say, is show me a model of left of center almost unopposed democratic government that works, how do I put this, as badly or better than California, be it the county of Los Angeles, the city of L.A., uh, or the state. Um, Because there is an ideological underpinning here, large state budget, large tax revenues, very progressive tax code that keeps getting more progressive. What superior results has that delivered versus a swing or more red uh, politically more conservative, smaller government ideology state. And I, I never really have an answer to it, but maybe our learned guests do, because I tend to buy that presumption, at least from my own experience, which, of course, is limited, but not non-existent. First of all, what, my comment was not about the way California is today. For example, I, I built a business over 25 years from 1979 to 2003 uh, that I would not do in California right now. And my son has a clothing manufacturing company. He was born and raised in California. He's based in in uh, in New York. His manufacturing, some of it used to be done in Los Angeles. It's now done in St. Louis and India and Portugal. He found California a very difficult state to work in. Uh, my point is that California, I mean, it's an extraordinary place. Anybody can go outside today. We'll see. It's an extraordinary place with extraordinary natural resources and an extraordinary infrastructure still. What's bad is governance and government services. There's practically no state in the country. In fact, for certain, there's no state in the country that has a higher tax rate, as we know. And there's no state that has poor services effectively. We always rank lower. And while well off off people like, you know, I was able to send my kids to private school, 5.9 million kids are in California public schools. And despite a doubling in spending per pupil over the last decade, not only is performance no better, but their lives are worse. And we got nearly 15 million people on Medi-Cal who have greater access, but they don't have better health necessarily, even though hospitals have much higher operating earning margins than they did just a decade ago. So, Mike, my response is uh, right now you can't find a state that meets the, the, the California, I think, falls. It comes in last virtually everywhere. Poor minority students do better in schools in Texas than they do in California. But California can be golden, again, with good governance. But I don't think that can happen unless the legislature is made more protected against special interest influence. John, let me follow that up by by, uh, noting, uh, reaffirming that California has, I think, the highest state income taxes in the country, very high sales taxes. And a lot of people allege that this is driving residents and businesses out of the state. Does California have to do more both to get results from the revenue that it generates, number one, which is what I think David was just talking about, and number two, to convince businesses that are already here not to leave and to incentivize new businesses to come in? Yeah, I think for many that's in fact a 
the case, Bob, that's, that's a good question. So yeah, 13.3, uh, highest marginal income tax rate, you know, a high uh, state sales tax base rate, uh, we do provide more services than many other jurisdictions uh, throughout the United States of America. Uh, many people do leave uh, the state of California uh, because of our higher taxes. Uh, a lot of them, when I surveyed many businesses uh, during my public uh, days, they were concerned about the taxes, but that wasn't the uh, outcome determinative factor. It's, it was the difficulty of uh, retaining staff here uh, because the cost of housing, the cost of living, the the transportation that uh, the, some of the school districts that they uh, that their kids went to weren't the highest performing. Uh, we certainly do have to do a better job in regards to uh, providing services. So when you talk about a, a state that leans, uh, you know, slightly left Delaware, right? Delaware has a different approach as to government services, especially businesses. Uh, you know. Since I've left office, I operate businesses that are Delaware incorporated. Uh, the experiences are very different, right? You, you talk to some of the folks in uh, their department in terms of qualifying a business. If you make an error, they will, they will tell you uh, that it's, in fact, incorrect or, in fact, you, the, you may want to look at some of the alternatives, right? It's that personalized service. Uh, so that's not something that we, we can't do here in California. We just need the leadership uh, within certain agencies and departments to say, hey, let's think about this differently and let's try to promote and assist those businesses. Okay, Washington State has no income tax. Uh, it has a pretty generous social safety net. It does have a high sales tax. Are we likely to see it? First of all, why is California, and David, I think you were alluding to this earlier, why is California falling behind if it is in the way you suggest, when there's so much revenue? What are the causes of that? And secondly, are we at some point likely to see a tax revolt at the ballot box? California is way behind in virtually every area. Put aside government services, our unemployment rate is 60% higher than the national rate. So the, the burden has fallen largely on working class people in California, even though we have a high tax rate that affects the you know, the people that pay the most taxes, the greatest burden is falling on ordinary people whose services are just terrible. And unemployment is higher. And you talked earlier about incentivizing businesses. When I was in the state government, I think we had 2 million private employers. I don't know how many there are now. But we it wasn't a world in which we needed to incentivize individual businesses. We just had to create a world in which when Mike Murphy wanted to start a business or fund a new business, it was easy to do so and easy for them to hire people, et cetera. So California and California, you know, the legislators, they over they oversee 29 codes. And in those codes are all the rules that are making it difficult for businesses to do business in California and hire people. That is ultimately fixable. Um, when it comes to the services and you talk uh, just K through 12 is the best example. The reason 5.9 kids get million kids get such lousy service is the education code is written largely by a monopoly. Now, you can't blame the California Teachers Association or the California Federation of Teachers for flexing their muscles. That's what they should do on behalf of their members. You have to blame a legislature for giving them their way. But you can create an education code in California. There is no reason why kids in California at $22,000 per, per pupil of spending can't have the highest quality instruction in the country, at least as good, if not better, than what Texas provides for low and, and um, low income poor and minority kids. 
But isn't part of the problem the political equation? I mean, I'm a political act, so of course, by gravity, I'll wind up there. But we all know the only politics that really counts statewide in California is the Democratic primary. There are other states where that's true of the Republican primary. But, and, you know, putting aside the fact that Republicans do a great job of scaring voters away and all the current problems the party has, there's really only one ideological menu for California. And there are interest groups in the Democratic Party that are really, really powerful. If you're a member, if you're an assemblyman, look, I remember when I was working for Arnold and we had to negotiate a state budget. You were there, David. Remember the big five meetings? Arnold was always like, get rid of the speaker, bring in the head of the public employee unions. That's who we're really negotiating with. They're just an order taker. So when you have that kind of chokehold and when you have almost no swing districts left, uh, you get kind of this corporatist, I mean, in the political science sense of an interest group coalition wielding political power. And as you say, I don't blame them, but boy, that grips the system. I mean, you try to run a Democratic primary uh, from a a more conservative Democratic point of view in most assembly districts, and you will go get crushed by independent expenditure. So even if the legislature wants, I mean, I I had an experience the other day. I'm an early investor in a company that's fascinating, kind of a labor arbitrage. They go to high unemployment communities and they train people to operate forklifts by remote control. You can operate a remote forklift a thousand miles away. Uh, it's happening now. It's a high tech thing. And the intellectual property comes out of Silicon Valley. And they're like, well, we got to go to some states and low unemployment areas and see if we can get a micro grant to set up more of these things. And I checked in the California world with a very thoughtful person who said, are you kidding? Labor will kill that tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. Don't bug us. I called Alabama and they're on their second meeting already. And I know who's going to win those jobs that are going to be here for a long time. Some of that labor, uh, that labor skill is exported. I mean, there are people running forklifts in the U.S. remote in France and frozen warehouses with this technology. So I think part of it is the political ideological gravity here is really hard to change, to give them more room to get out of that equation. And maybe a tax revolt, to Bob's question, will do it. There are two initiatives heading toward the ballot to raise taxes on the top end more. You know, and that's very much in the Democratic political consultants. If you ask them about an initiative now, they'll say, yeah, pay for it with a tax on the rich. That's the formula of success. So it becomes a compounding circle, I worry. Can I interpose one thing here? Because I disagree a little bit that it's also monolithic Democratic politics in this state. I mean, last week, despite the Democratic supermajorities in the legislature, the so-called progressive push for Medicare for all a single-payer health care system in California alone couldn't even muster enough support to be brought to a vote. What happened? Did some of these Democratic legislators fear the political consequences of all the tax increases that would have to go on the ballot to pay for this? I mean, is it all that monolithic, John, or is there, is there some real diversity? So let me start off with my... Mike's point, Mike, I think for the mere mortal politician, right, who needs to depend on the institutional organizations, they are wedded, right? And so it's how far will you go to uh, satisfy what the requirements are? If, if you're above a mere mortal like Jerry Brown, you can push back. So the question is, right, who, who polls really well? Uh, who's really strong in a local base where this, uh, the institutional interests aren't going to take on that particular candidacy? And so, right, so it gets to Bob's point, right? It sort of parses the difference. Uh, And then you have to understand politics, right? Who who are you going to pick to be your supporters, right? You can have those that are incredibly progressive, 
slightly progressive and in the center uh, on the uh, left, right? Those, if you appease to the right, they're not going to jump into your primary uh, very often, right? There'll be a few instances like the, uh, the Rubio sisters where the oil industry will jump into a, a Democratic primary, but it, does, it doesn't happen as often, right? The revolt happens, as I used to say when I was in office and when I was the controller, tried to make sure that the Democrats appeared fiscally responsible. If we, if we look like we're fiscally irresponsible or if we uh, don't control the criminal justice issue, that's where the Democrats will lose their margins. It happened with Gray Davis, right? You had that that spike in the budget deficit that was unanticipated, uh, and the Democrats lost their majority. Well, uh, so, I mean, full disclosure, Governor of California is a big bundler of donations to both parties. And I'll just start off by saying that parties don't really matter nearly as much as they used to. Top two has played a role in that. But you know, Mike, you bring up this ideological difference. You never, you should never forget that it was Ronald Reagan who signed the law in 68 that first granted collective bargaining rights to government employees in California, and opening the door to only local and county employees who were police and fire. And that set the table for everything. And by the way, if you time that with the revolt, you know, Prop 13, you know, if, if you, you 68, you unleash them, there are greater demands for compensation on local budgets. At the same time, there's inflation, so property taxes are going up. And then you get, in 1975 and 1977, the granting of collective bargaining rights to teachers and state employees at the same time that Prop 13 happens and AB8 happens that centralizes power in Sacramento. It was the perfect storm for giving more power to the principal recipients of state spending. So 70 cents of every dollar go either to a healthcare corporation or a government employee. So um, it's not so much of a Republican or Democratic issue. The Republicans played a huge role in the retroactive pension increase in 1999, overwhelmingly supported it. And you may remember when Arnold had a very a tiny, itsy-bitsy pension reform in 2010. Well, I do remember. The Democrats were going to support it. Right. Guess who blindsided us? Senate Republicans. Because right. they, they knew that the prison guards were going to have more influence after Arnold left than, than that. So... I'd, uh, Bob asked the question about AB 1400 getting beat. It's not because legislators are worried about a reaction down the road. They are very focused on their own districts. Virtually all the Democrats are worried about being uh, attacked on their left flank. And therefore, since, AB, since the single-payer polls well, even though it was a BS single-payer bill that wasn't like any single-payer plan in the world, that bill still went down to defeat. And I can tell you it's because legislators internally are starting to see that there are people that will support them for protecting the general interest. But it's a very long-term battle. And, and I'll just end this, this one comment by saying it's something John Kerry told me in 2010, just before we launched Government for California in 2011. And I said, Senator, when is our party, I'm a life, lifelong Democrat, going to stop doing the bidding of all these special interests? And he said, David, they're always there for us. So I swore that the only way it was going to change, I realized, is if other people were going to always be there for legislators. It, 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 that's just what they need in order to stand up to these powerful special interests, and it won't happen overnight. Well, also on the single-payer interest, right? On the other side, you have the California Hospital Association, California Medical Association, California Dental Association. So you have pretty powerful organizations on the other side. Was labor whipping for it? I, I think they they stood aside, right? Public employee labor. I think no. Some labor, some public employee labor liked it. Not all. 
So yeah. it's very split. It's very split. Maybe we should move on to another subject that people and critics of California talk about all the time. And that's about waste and fraud in state government programs. Is this a problem here? And how big a problem is it? It's a problem. I mean, we had that scandal. I can't remember which department it was, but not long ago with some of the emergency COVID checks were, you know, uh, wildly. I mean, it was almost like a self-parody of, of a government waste, you know, embarrassing scandal. But yeah, I think I think it is a problem. Again, I you know, putting aside the ideological thing, the premise I have that we're kind of a model of left of center not working so well, just the competence side of it is, is really pretty shocking. And I don't know what the fixes are there. It's pretty hard to, you know, hire and fire here. I'm curious what you guys think, having been in the system. I mean, how do you make something like that not happen again? Right now, a few bad headlines and, you know, on we go. Well, one of the things I wanted is I wanted a master database uh, for, for every single Californian or anybody who in- interacts with the system. So that would actually fix that issue. I proposed that a long time ago there. So, right, when you, when you have those in the correctional system that are filing for unemployment insurance, right, the, if you had a system in place, you would have flagged that that person probably didn't qualify. And then if you had a private sector uh, payrolls, pay, uh, pay system uh, where, you can, where they start detecting uh, irregular tendencies, that would also have done the same thing. But that's part of the challenge uh, in state government and government, right? Most technology projects aren't they're not high priority because you don't have an institutional group that supports it. I have two comments about it. One is on the EDD scandal that you're talking about, which was about when you think about it, you couldn't find anything more tragic in a world where people were losing jobs, breadwinners, and they can't even get a response from EDD. Take Rhode Island, which is the smallest state in the country, but it's all about scale. Rhode Island, under Gina Raimondo at that time, early on cut a deal with Amazon Web Services to, cut, to create a new front end with the same old legacy computers that they had in Rhode Island, just like California, which was the complaint California kept saying that they had legacy computer systems. They created a new front end. And of course, Amazon's particularly good at this. And they even made the code public. So all states could do it. And they had much less of a problem in that state. California could have done the same thing. And I honestly don't know why it didn't become the number one priority for the executive branch. The legislative branch can do next to nothing about that. But more generally, in a world where they're spending $300 billion a year, including federal funds, it's not so much that there's waste and fraud. There was huge waste at EDD. The problem is of the vast majority of spending. Take Medi-Cal is $122 billion. K-12 is $120 billion. In Medi-Cal, it's about poor value for money. So that's why I mentioned earlier how the operating margins of hospitals, including nonprofit hospital chains, went up by about 50% after Obamacare because of the expansion of Obamacare, which basically took over for charity care and made life wonderful for hospitals, both for-profit and non-profit. So they did better, and there was better access, but the incentives are set up so that people didn't necessarily get healthier. That's not waste or fraud. That's bad incentives. And, And if you start to compensate health providers, you reward them with bonuses for making people healthier, you can change that. Then take K through 12. 120 billion of spending, absolutely terrible results and terrible lives for kids. That's all about having effectively a monopoly. The the only choice is the form of non-government operated schools, more conventionally known as charter schools, and they're very limited in California. Parents need to have much more choice so they can put that monopoly under the gun. And that'll be a war for years. 
kick but up. then it's it's back to the political. I've been on the board of the National Public Charter School uh, Association Alliance forever, and you know you get into these feedback loops where elected school boards and low turnout school board elections, the teachers union essentially chooses who they negotiate with. And so, you know, all the political incentives are hell no, even though quietly, you know, we get a remarkable amount of kind of, boy, I wish politically I could do this because I know it'll work, but it's a death sentence to me. So, you know, once you get into that feedback loop politics, people just get caught. And that is just a hard thing to break. And it can, you can say the same thing about try to pass a gun rights bill in Alabama. No, but that's why you got to win. It's just like, you got to win. So, and you can't do it overnight. And um, so the school boards in California, by the way, before Assembly Bill 1505, there was a presumption in favor of charter schools being approved. So school boards only have as much power as the state legislature gives them. So it really ultimately comes back to the power of the legislature, which writes the code. And you got to have the right legislators. And believe me, there are Democrats in that legislature right now that would empower more choice for California kids. But you got to get 61 votes. Ultimately, you got to get this, you know, four, uh, I'm sorry, 62, 41 in the assembly and, and 21 uh, in, the, in the Senate. And it takes time. I want to offer a more nuanced perspective on David's comment uh, referencing former governor, uh, the Rhode Island governor, Gina. Um, Romundo, yeah. Yeah. Now, right, clearly now cabinet secretary and AWS. Uh, I try to modernize our payroll system in the state of California. So we, we can't, unlike others, we can't use an off the shelf program, right? When people say, hey, technology, the, why can't California in the big technology state implement this, right? When you have 26 different the, uh, negotiating groups, when you have all these different rules, right? The, uh, those technology companies will tell state government to change the rules to conform with their system, right? They don't design a system for us. So that's why, they, right, we got into the massive litigation. I was the f- first public official that won our performance bond back, right? Because we got the contractor, uh, we got some whistleblowers to uh, to state that their colleagues had engaged in fraud on the project. So the David's greater point is correct, right? We need to work on that. But I just wanted to make sure that people, after hearing all this, don't think this is simple, right? Why can't we just implement technology? Yeah, but let me just correct. EDD was one big customer. The 26 EDD bargaining units you're EDD talking about is employee compensation. Yeah. This is one customer. Yeah, no, EDD is different, right? I just wanted to reference the, our experience with the modern payroll system. David, you mentioned pensions a while ago, and Governor Newsom, who triumphed in the, in the recall election, in fact, it may have been the biggest favor anybody could have done, seems to be in a very strong position for 2022. How do you assess his performance on these issues? And if, there, if he's reelected, do you think there's any prospect that he'll take on some of the big systemic challenges like pension reform? My answer is, and, and you know, having served for seven years with Governor Schwarzenegger and going up there and thinking I knew a lot and then learning very quickly I knew nothing and seeing that the executive branch, there's a reason it's Article 5 after Article 4 of the legislature. You, no matter who the governor is, you can't do it. You can't do it without those 62 votes in the legislature. So I will say right now that if the governor, whether it's Governor Newsom, Governor Chung, you, you pick the name, they would implement pension reform in California if they thought they could get the 62 votes in the legislature. And it would be crazy to even try it before they knew that they had that math. 
So I really, I do believe whether it's Governor, I think Governor Newsom would absolutely do, it's not just pension reform. You know, we have other post-employment benefits, which are retiree health care benefits, which are the stupidest things in the world, because since Obamacare, and especially now with the enhancements at the federal level, you can get subsidies up to 600% of the poverty level with federal money. And yet we've got over, you know, we got nearly $200 billion of liabilities for retiree health benefits for retired government employees. I believe Governor Newsom or whoever the governor would be would do that and would also do pensions and other things if they knew the legislature was going to be there for them on that point. Well, I think in the case of Gavin, just quickly, I think he might want to, but he's also got his eye on national democratic politics. So even if he had the legislative votes, I don't know if he'd want to move forward in national democratic politics as an enemy of labor. Uh, just again, the ugly head of politics. But I agree, it's foolish to do it if you're just heading down a road to martyrdom in the legislature because you pay a huge political price for nothing. What's popular is education reform. The, uh, right, and what's popular is this competency-based education. So if I was, if I was Governor Newsom or a governor across the country, right, the, you know, you, people understand that you know, students today are missing out on the fundamental building blocks, especially after, after COVID. And so we can't have this social promotion where, right, the, uh, to save face for a child for a year or two years, right, we put them in permanent, permanent disability for the rest of their life. And so the, uh, right, I, I think that the, you know, getting past the public school, charter school issues, right, if we can t- address fundamental issues like that, we can make progress. John, I want to I ask you, if you had become governor, uh, which you certainly thought about and aspired to, would you have, undertaken pension reform would you have dared to step on that landmine i would have touched upon it i i would have done what i said the uh, i would have worked on business improvement housing and education right that competency-based education is the first thing i would have gone to right you gotta you gotta build trust back in the system we've lost parents we lost middle-class faith uh in the governance of this country uh and so Right, I would have tapped. I would have tapped straight into what fundamentally would have brought belief back in if you if it works in the system, and then if you if if you build success there, you can build success in other areas. I'll move on to another question. California is a navy blue state. Is there any path for Republicans to become competitive here? And given that the legislature is almost seventy five percent Democratic, and statewide candidates now lose GOP candidates now lose every election is is there how, how do how do you make the state more competitive and and does it need to be yeah well no the not right now if, if you still have a republican party influenced by donald trump right if you're going to defend the what happened with the uh, january 6th insurrection that's a tall hurdle for republicans to defend right and when your leadership especially your congressional leadership emanates out of california and they're defending those policies the, the Republicans have an opportunity. The, uh, you know, I said on Fox TV, it's like, I miss the old Republicans. What happened to balanced budgets? What happened to, you know, the uh, caring about neighborhoods? What happened about goodwill? That's not there, right? Because the Democrats will give them an opportunity if they don't start to address criminal justice issues and if they don't address financial matters. But the re- Republicans right there uh, are going to drop the ball. I don't think it matters that much in California. It's all about shade of Democrat. I mean, if, if you had 61 Gina Raimondos in the California legislature, she's a Democrat, right? She's the, she was the, you, know, you, you cited pensions before, she was, still is, the most aggressive, successful pension reform in the country, right or left, you know, Republican or Democrat. If you had 61 of those, 
uh, you'd be perfectly fine in California. And by the way, the, the people keep thinking these Republicans, I mean, I work for a Republican governor who I love, uh, and we see eye to eye in virtually everything, but don't fool yourselves into thinking the Republicans were all these great fiscal conservatives in California. They were not. And, you know, and, uh, and uh, everybody, it's, I don't know what it is where people think there's this golden age. Uh, there wasn't that golden age. And I can point you to all kinds of examples. There are great Democrats right now in the California legislature that are more fiscally conservative, in my view, than most of the Republicans in Idaho, or many of them. Well, as a nominal Republican, I think there is a path forward. The problem is it's just like the Democrats. It's the primary incentives. You know, the Democrats are in a battle where they're trying to limit their interest groups to a six-course dinner, not a 10-course one at the trough. The Republicans, when you start to run a a centerist, effective government Republican, which there is a market for in California, they carry the tremendous weight of one, their brand, all the Trumpy stuff that John mentioned. Uh, and they've got primary voters. I mean, a great case study is Meg Whitman, who was going to run as a centrist technocrat. Next thing you know, she has a primary all about the border with a self-funded guy, Steve Poisner, uh, who, who could make it a who's a Republican contest. And to survive him, she came out of that primary. I mean, I was there as the total Republican, and then she was very easy in the state to beat. So it is very hard to get a Republican, even with top two, past the base candidate who will either brand them bad or will be a spoiler enough that they, that, that, it, that it won't work. So short term, no on paper, a center is kind of technocratic, highly skilled, deliver better government uh, Republican. I think is possible potentially in the future of California, but right now it's very grim. Hey, we had an insurance commissioner race last time. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, John. Oh no. I was just citing an example for, from Mike. Yeah, no. And I agree with it. Down ballot races are a little easier because you, you frankly don't have the spotlight. You don't have to. But now the Republican Party has taken another two standard deviations into toxic brand world, thanks to the Donald. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was pro-choice. He was generally pro-LGBT rights. He wasn't running on social and cultural issues. And I'm not sure he ever could have been nominated right. in any process other than the one that actually elected him governor through the process of a recall. Because I think what Mike's talking about in terms of Republican primary voters, and of course it's top two, but you still got to consolidate people in your own party to get the nomination. You know, he may be the last Republican governor for a long time. No, for two years when I, well, while I was his political advisor, I did the campaign, then I was his advisor. One of my biggest priorities was making sure he didn't occasionally follow his own instincts to a point where he would have had a Republican closed primary and he could have lost. You know, we got to the point where we had to engineer appearances at the Republican convention, not to get booed and have paper cups thrown at him. It was a major issue. And in the recall, we didn't have any of that. It's a little bit analogous to what happened in Virginia. A lot of that was anti-Biden, anti-democratic anger. Uh, but Youngkin didn't have a classic Republican primary to have to navigate which gave him a lot of room to move. And it was similar in the recall, even more so with Arnold. Um, that's why I'm so for open primaries. It's a better marketplace. I would just add that it's a little bit illusory. And, and I said this to Meg Whitman. It, she's, it, uh, if she had won, she could have done nothing. It's like Bruce Rauner. Well, yeah. It's, yeah, because it's not like it, at the federal level, presidents have uh, some discretion, a lot of discretion with military policy and foreign, po- I mean, with defense and foreign policy, right? But when it comes to domestic issues, 
They need Congress. And that is entirely what it is running a state, especially one of the Western states like California with our constitution. So a governor, Meg Whitman, Abe Lincoln, pick whatever Republican you want, can't do anything <laughs> in California without the consent of 62 people. All they can do is stop things and a Republican would have to worry about an override. And they ended up looking like fools. Look at Rauner, which is such a great example of somebody who, it was so ironic, because a private equity guy who probably studied- In, in Illinois, the, Illinois governor, you're talking Oh yeah, about. The, I'm sorry, yeah. He's a private equity guy, like this guy in Virginia. He's a private equity guy who ran in a blue state where Michael Madigan was the Speaker of the Assembly. So anybody who knew Illinois knew the governor had term limits, the legislature did not, Whoever won was going to have no power against that legislature. A Republican governor in California who couldn't win anyway would be dead in the water in California. And we give, by the way, would make my job tougher at reforming California because it would give us, a, give a, a, everybody a pot shot, somebody to look to saying, oh, look at that person. Let me follow up with my three Democratic friends here. So if the Democratic <laughs> legislature has all the power and controls success or failure on reform, how do you elect a better one? Because in my experience as a consultant, hard to find candidates who work hard to get elected and then want to commit what they perceive to be political suicide, taking on interest groups. I mean, there's a reason the way it is the way it is right now. Well, when's the last time you look closely at the legislature, John, in, over the last, uh, Mike, over the last 10 years, what is the last time you look closely at the legislature? You know, I've been involved in the past in some of the jobs pack stuff at the chamber, but you know, I just look at the outputs. I'm waiting for any of these reforms. I'll, I'll take a small loaf. You won't get reforms for, you got, there's only one reform that happened in the last few years, which was liberation of nurse practitioners, which beat CMA, right? Right. It's all defense initially, because it's the only way you can, you can show that you've got muscle. But it, I, the other thing I've learned is elections don't matter that much. It, much, much more important is post-election support, financial support. And, and actually, my co-teacher at Stanford tells our students, Joe Nation, who represented uh, Marin County, Joe tells the students, he knocked on virtually every door in Marin, Marin County when he ran, you know, kind of like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, he goes up to Sacramento, and within a week, the speaker says to him, welcome to Sacramento, Joe, go raise me, whatever the figure was, 100000 and that which is now 300000 And that 100000 has to be raised in direct donations, right? Not independent expenditures. It's got to go into the bank account. Like, you know, uh, so so it's money the legislator can use in ways. And who's there to supply that funding once they're elected? Who was there then? The prison guards union, Chevron, all the usual suspects. That's the end. And so the elections don't matter as much as the post-election support, in my experience. And like I said earlier, but, you know, I'm very biased. It's all about protecting those legislators and giving them the power so they can actually represent their districts. And if you look, where do you live in L.A.? What part of L.A.? Me, Hancock Park. I don't know who your senator is. It's picks, like Ben Allen in West Los Angeles. Ben is a super intelligent. He's my state senator. Yeah. It, you know what the alternative would have been was, uh, I forget her name now. Uh, we were involved in that race. But Ben is a smart guy who would like to do the right thing generally. And it's all about making sure you can get 62 votes. He's one of the people who didn't want to approve the last prison guard salary increase. So it's, it takes time is why I keep saying you're not going to see the reforms you want overnight. Yeah. I, I, I'd be happy to take them slow. John, you're the only one here who's actually been on the ballot. Uh, <laughs> it, it, so I'd be curious for your take on all this, uh, getting a legislature that might be a, more effective and more reform minded. 
Any thoughts? No, the, unless you have other institutional groups pop up, right? The, it's, it, it's up to each individual legislator or constitutional officer uh, to figure out that calculation that's going to be there to them for, I wouldn't say too thick and thin, right? But to get them through cycle to cycle uh, to push, you know, whatever agenda and to be selective, uh, right? And that's when you're selective with your individual issues, it's you, you have those who are workhorses uh, who will build uh, – it, it build a significant uh, following on a, a particular issue, but it, it's rare. It's incredibly rare. Last year, there was a bill proposed by Lorena Gonzalez, who was then chair of appropriations, the most powerful person in the assembly next to the speaker, if not most pro- more powerful, to grant collective bargaining rights to legislative staff. The only group that still didn't already have collective bargaining rights up there. Now think about that. Legislators would be granting collective bargaining rights to people they would then be seeking endorsements from and donations from. It's like the worst situation in the world. She had 40 co-sponsors in one weekend. Why? Because she's chair of appropriations. And every legislator knows if their bill is going to get considered, it's going to go through a probes and it better get through a probes. That bill didn't advance. Now, why do you think it didn't advance? Study it and see. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, why don't you let us in on it? No, no, I'm going to. You guys are scholars now at USC. You study it and see and study, study what has happened, what the world was like for legislators. Everybody gives legislators a ton of grief and they say they don't have the courage. I was among them, by the way, but it isn't that. It is an unbelievably difficult world. When they go up there, like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, most of them wanting to do the right thing. And who do they see everybody every day in the Capitol when the Capitol is operating, when it's not COVID? And every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night, when there's a fundraiser that they have to, where they have to collect money, and and uh, even a thousand dollars means uh, uh, something to them. It's prison guards, it's Chevron, it's CMA, it's California Healthcare, you know, the Hospitals Association, etc. And it's a very difficult world to operate in when you get anything done. As one of those legislators, you have to get if you're in the assembly, forty other assembly members to agree with you. So they need ammunition and that, you know, Robert Carroll, I think, does a very good job of describing this in The Path to Power. His book about Lyndon Johnson, yeah. Yes. <laughs> More money, right? Yeah, but it's not a lot of money. I mean, reform money to go battle the other special interest money, net more money. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to find a practical thing that I, from, more you know, being a cynical old politician, just having seen it in so many places for so long, how you could at least change some incentives. It's more money persistently. It's not a lot of money. I mean, we, we donated uh, nearly $5 million, that's all, over, uh, from 2019 to 21, and we're the largest donor to the legislature. It's not a lot of money. It's much more about persistence. Go look, see for yourself what the others donated. Mike, why don't we turn to audience questions? Do you want to start off? Sure. I'd footnote, does that include IEs, though? That's the other problem we have. Well, but IEs don't matter when it comes to legislators getting power. You're focused on elections again. But yeah, but I, I've counseled a lot of politicians. The first question is always, how the hell do I get reelected? Then you why know, do you, so it's, if you tell me that's not part of the equation, I just don't believe it. Then go check out Reggie Jones-Sawyer's race last year. And tell me again, even though why the prison guard spent a million against him, he prevailed. No, it happens, but it's an, the, the IE threat works. I mean, for every, every reformer like that, unfortunately, there are a lot of, there are more who don't do that. And it's not a system I like, but it's, uh, it's what we're stuck with. And I, anyway, let, let's go. I know we're out of time, Bob. We have a lot of questions here. This is from Rosemary Nakamura. How do you think California is rated in handling the homelessness issue? And then any suggestions? 
last. <laughs> uh, and you will see a study coming out of Stanford later this year or next year. Yeah, this year on behalf of some legislators about the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of our homelessness spending. Uh, and some of it is still in progress, but it's, we talked earlier about performance. It's less about waste and fraud. It's about poor performance and all the money. You'll see constantly proposals for this investment and that investment and next and no follow up on how they did. But you can see for yourself, you live in Los Angeles. How's it look? Any better? Oh, but believe me, it, it's a paradise. And, you know, frankly, we have municipal decisions about how to handle it, which frankly subsidizes the great more. Uh, but anyway, let's keep going. We have a ton of questions here. You know, this is from an anonymous attendee. What role do public employee unions play in tarnishing the shine of the Golden State? I think we kind of beat that one to death. Anybody have anything else to say? I, don't, I think they don't help. I just want to defend them. It, it's, they are not bad people. They're just doing their job. And, and um, anyway, people beat up too much on public employees. I know that sounds odd. Question three from Kimberly Bliss. Though this is not true globally, Non-U.S. citizens can buy property in the United States, making it a very attractive option to foreign investors. California is a very desirable place to live where many foreigners own property, taking much of the supply available. Is this, isn't this a major reason for the inflated real estate values, which make it difficult or impossible for citizens of the United States to purchase real estate in California? I'm not sure I buy the premise, but maybe others. In selective communities, it has a huge impact. So, for instance, when we saw that last recession in some of the heavily uh, heavily Chinese-American areas, heavily Chinese areas like uh, Arcadia, San Marino, uh, despite a decrease in uh, property valuations, you saw an increase or uh, less of a decrease in, in, in those areas. So it's not widespread, but yes, in certain communities, it, it applies. A question from, oh, Anonymous again, probably a different Anonymous. Other than the issue of water distribution, would California as a whole be better off if we were two states instead of one? Are we too big to manage? You hear that a lot. I don't actually believe it, but what do you think? No, I think this fundamental issues that we addressed earlier in regards to the, you know, the influence uh, would still apply whether you had one state or two states. I agree. Unless it's just the Central Valley and we meant two Republican Senate seats. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> the old North Dakota, South Dakota. I know, exactly. <laughs> Yankton should be still the capital there. It's a beautiful city. It was the old territorial capital. Yeah, then they were going to admit Dakota, and the Republicans said, well, let's have a North Dakota and a South Dakota, and we get two more senators, which most of the time has proved to be true. Well, the Democrats played that game, too. It's actually a fascinating historical thing. It was like an arms race over 20 years to mint Senate seats. <laughs> on both sides. So Kimberly's back. Are there any recently published books that look at the issues that need to be reformed in California, including proposed solutions? And if so, please share them. No, uh, there are very few. First of all, there are very few scholars who look at this stuff very seriously. There are papers and and it's not like the solutions aren't known. So for example, to reform other post-employment benefits, which is a very boring subject to most people, but has huge impact on school districts like LAUSD. Everybody knows what has to be done. It's entirely about power, which is overcoming the power of the government employee unions in that case who don't want that to change. Same thing is true of pensions. Um, and so I don't, I, I, it's not like there's a lack of ideas. I mean, how many people think in the K through 12 area that it works for there to be for 90% of the schools to be served by only one provider? And you think about, think about it when it comes to Medicare, right? I'm on Medicare. 
I can choose whatever provider I want, but it's publicly funded. Yet when it comes to schools, it's publicly funded, but they can only choose one provider. And you would tend to get lousy service when you only have one provider. So I think people kind of know solutions. It's all about power. I would recommend the road to serfdom, but it's not directly applicable. <laughs> Question six from Victor Argueda. And I apologize, Victor, if I mispronounced your name. If any angry letters send to Bob. Do you believe California can reverse its net migration loss to other states that on paper have higher affordability, higher fiscal stability and solvency, and tougher crime enforcement, whether real or not? I guess whether real or just perceived. I think that we can. Well, I certainly we do. We need the change. Yeah, well, I certainly do. Yeah, John. Yeah, oh, yeah, I, I deeply believe so. I was in an event last night with Macy Gray and Chris Carter, the the, the football player and other athletes at a family office. Uh, the people want to come here, right? There's a guy who's moving out to Utah. There's a guy who's one guy is talking to is moving to Florida, but another guy's moving into uh, California. So we're trading, we're trading off. Uh, we make this marginally more attractive. More people are coming. Kind of a double header here from Frank Brodsky. Uh, and we're going to move fast here because only a few minutes left. Please discuss prop 13 reform and whether or not it would help. And please discuss California's allegedly disappointing, proportionate payment into the federal government for what the state gets in return. Cause that's a, there's tricky accounting to that. And a lot of States claim it. I'm curious. Uh, and I, particularly from John, what you think the truth is on the overpayment thing or over indexing and any thoughts on prop 13 reform. So I don't know how you, uh, how you make the adjustment, right? The prop 13 addressed an issue that uh, people were concerned about being knocked out of their house because they couldn't afford taxes. They, uh, so my question is fundamentally not just to look at Proposition 13. It's like, how do we finance California government? So, right, when you look at the three-legged stool, property tax, well, on the state side, we do income taxes, sales taxes, and corporate taxes, right? And then for local government with the backfill from property tax, uh, for property taxes, mine is just to make sure that we have a proper balance, right? So I wouldn't, as I've always advocated, I wouldn't make major adjustments into one area unless the, we do comprehensive reform. I think that there's a chance to reform it sometime in the next 20 years. Call me, a, call me a fool. It was such a disaster. And to have a more balanced system. But in the meantime, we have just have to have much greater reserves because uh, we have such a boom and bust revenue system at the state. On the overpayment, by the way, I do not think that's net of the advantage California gets probably from having uh, from a number of things. We could spend more time on that. I think it's a good talking point for some people. Yeah, I, I'm the same on that. If you really dig into it, it's much more complicated. Uh, okay, double question, our final question uh, from Diane Wallace and also from Anonymous, essentially the same question. Diane says, I'm a Democrat and a delegate to the California Democratic Party. I think that both parties are better when they are both strong and work across the aisle. Is there a good moderate Republican who can provide leadership to strengthen the California Republican Party? Uh and then the other, the anonymous also got into, they have no chance in the state. Short-term statewide, nothing but trouble. Uh, but they ought to control their destiny and become competitive, I'd say. And there's no superstar because it's hard to be famous in California. There are some state assembly members. But I, I, I don't see the obvious person on the horizon. And I do see the Republican primary. You know, uh, we saw Kevin Falconer, former mayor of San Diego, um, kind of got swept into that, and he didn't get any votes, and he even got beaten in his home county. And he was a very California-friendly, kind of traditional kind of Republican. 
So let me say hi to Diane. The uh, Diane's been a longtime friend at the uh, from the Democratic clubs. The uh, I, I I dealt with a lot of really positive and decent Republicans. Mark Steinor, Scott Wilk. Uh, uh, I served today. I recommended her to serve on uh, the California Forward Board. Catherine Baker. Uh, right. You're not going to agree with them a lot, right? You just want to find people on selected issues. And so when I try to put together a, a bipartisan coalition, uh, we had meetings. Uh, in in the treasurer's office, uh, you know, they were willing, right? They were they were right. willing to pass credit to me or other Democrats. I said no, you know, all of us ought to share credit just to demonstrate that, uh, you know, we're trying to going to try to govern in a different fashion. So there's plenty out there. I would respond by saying it's a little bit. I think it was a with Hitchcock who always had the MacGuffin in some of his films that was yeah. a distraction from the real thing. The Repu- the within the Democratic Party itself in California. Just take Richard Roth, a state senator from the Inland Empire, who's completely different than Ash Kalra, a Democrat who represents this, who was the sponsor of AB 1400, the so-called single payer bill. They're very different shades of Democrat. So when you talk about Democrats and negotiating across the aisle with moderate Republicans, and by the way, there, there are a bunch of really good Republicans up there, just like there are a bunch of good, really good Democrats. What matters more in the short term and probably for the near long term, is the relationship between Democrats of different shades. All right, exit question real quick because it just popped up, but it's kind of cool. This is from Aaron Good. Legislative term limits, good or bad? You know, today I don't think it makes a difference. The uh, Early on, I thought the, uh, and generally for the most part, I think it's, I, I think it's terrible. The, uh, th- there's just not enough depth of knowledge. Uh, I just try to find I, I used to argue governments like human institutions, right? You have 15% that are high performing, a chunk in the middle, 15% are low performing. If you could get that 1% out of that 15% heading committees, right, you could get some real positive work done. It's problematic if you don't. But if you have people with no experience, no institutional history, it's a calamity. My general view, is, it's very biased. They're bad. They're terrible. I mean, I voted for them in California, and I regret that decision back in the '90s, whenever it was. But uh, but if you got a great legislature, you want no term limits, and you got a lousy one, you want term limits so you can switch them out. Uh, now we get we're increasingly getting a good legislature. I start to see them. I'd like to see them evaporate. You know, I can only quote my hero and old boss Bob Dole, who on the campaign trail in '88 was asked about term limits, and he said, "Well." It's an interesting idea. I've set up a special commission headed by Strom Thurmond to look into it. He's <laughs> going to get back to me in a few terms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, President Kennedy was once asked at a press conference about term limits, and he said, that's an idea that I might consider in a post-presidential period. <laughs> Wasn't going to fight with people in the, in the Congress. So I think we're coming to the end of this. I want to invite our audience to join us for the next Bully Pulpit with Representative Jamie Raskin remarkable member of Congress who's on the January 6th committee. I want to thank Mike, who is not only a great interlocutor, but has very strong opinions about some of these things. And I especially want to thank David and John. This was a really interesting conversation about something that I think the press, the media in general, pay far too little attention to in this state. So thank you all very much. Thanks to our audience and see you soon. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. 
Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.